a dreadful room in Wigan, where all the furniture seemed to be made of packing cases and barrel staves, and was coming to pieces at that. And an old woman with a blackened neck and her hair coming down, denouncing her landlord in a Lancashire Irish accent. And her mother, aged well over 90, sitting in the background on the barrel that served her as a commode, and regarding us blankly with a yellow, cretinous face. I could fill up pages with memories of similar interiors. Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Matthew Taunton. This podcast revisits a classic piece of social and political non-fiction. In describing the unemployment, the poor standards of housing, health, malnutrition, as well as the sheer drudgery of daily life in the north of England, George Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier is still a shocking book to read, a powerful documentary of enduring social, literary and political significance. It has inspired writer and journalist Stephen Armstrong to walk Orwell's Road to Wigan and to see how much has changed since Orwell's time. Stephen, what made you want to write your book? Um, it was it was an assumption that things had changed, but we'd lost something. It was the I, I felt for various reasons to do with a friend of mine who was working at that point in um, in charities and working on um, poverty and ethnicity, and uh, she was doing one of these you know, very new labour projects. And what she found, uh, coming from a Pakistani background herself, doing this research into Somali communities and doing white working class communities is almost like as a control just to see how much worse it was to be Somali. Finding that she didn't think it was worse to be Somali, that in fact there was a community structure around around Somali communities. Mosque was a centre of kind of relaxation, that there were clubs which would save money, that everyone gathered together. And when she was talking to the white working class, that the people were just on Prozac alone in council flats. And so this was in 2010 it began, and I was thinking, Mm. well, that's, you know, the children of the people that Orwell met will be... They'll maybe materially better off, but what's happened to the community and the soul? And then you you know you go back and uh, you find that they're not necessarily materially better off, and that the you know there's a different forms of poverty, but poverty went away and now it's returned in a way. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we we've thought of a, a number of themes that we can discuss that Orwell addressed in his original book, and which you kind of come back to so at various extents. Um, and the first of these is a, a kind of question that's constantly raised in particularly in the reception of Orwell's book which is about whether the working classes smell. <laughs> yes, and the most controversial line in the book, really. Yeah. And Orwell was throughout his life kind of plagued by accusations that he had said that the working classes smell and constantly came back and said, no, um, I never said that. But actually what he talks about is the sense in which there's a kind of middle-class bourgeois prejudice against the working classes that, the, that they might smell. And you talk in the book about some of the kind of contemporary relevances of these kind of class prejudices. Yes, it feels to me, and I, and I think you know I'm not the only person writing at the moment who who's made this point. Owen Jones makes it very well, I think, in Chabs. This idea of the um, deserving and the undeserving poor that there are that there are people who are in a terrible state and deserve to be because they're bad people, you know. And it's uh, quite often there's that, that sense of squalor and poverty and smell attached to that particular kind of poor in, in certain writers, particularly in Victorian writers. And then it sort of goes away. It goes away a lot in the 50s and 60s, but then it seems to be returning. It seems to be acceptable largely to talk about hoodies and chavs and, you know, smelly, dirty, unemployed people who drink themselves, you know, binge Britain, this mm. conception that, there, that there's a, there are people wallowing in misery. And uh, Orwell's advantage, in a way, is that he talks, as an Eton schoolboy, he talks directly to the elite of his time because he, he'll be on first-name terms with a lot of those people. So, it, you know, often it's worth seeing Orwell's writing as being... A letter, in a way. There's a guy who talks about um, 
line in the unicorn as being about Orwell's attempt to make conservatives vote Labour, but make conservative socialists. And that, you can see that about some of what he's doing. It's, it's very direct. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it certainly has that kind of polemical uh, angle in mind. But I also feel that it's quite difficult to read some sections of Orwell's book without thinking that they are inflected by a kind of contempt for the people that he's describing. Certainly the, the famous scene which Orwell's book opens with in the, um, the tripe shop, um, which he, where he describes um, a really disgusting scene of poverty. White tripe. Yeah, I mean, and he, um, he really does uh, insist on that these, uh, these people smell quite strongly and are very nice. dirty, for all that it might, might not be their fault. There's lots of ways of looking at Wigan Pier with regards to oil. And, no, you know, people disagree in enormous amounts. When I began the book, I, I thought it was a very minor and you know, neglected part of his canon. And I'd read it and it had been influenced by it, but then I hadn't looked at it again for years. I'd, I'd, you know, I'd gone back to 1984 a number of times, but never gone back to that. And, but then I realised how, quite how important it was for a lot of people. So what I say about Wigan Pier is my view, and, and people agree and people disagree. I, I think that you can see, to a degree, Orwell making a journey while he's writing the book that's not just a journey to the north of England. It's also almost like a, a philosophical journey he's making. And, and he does begin the book with his down and out in London and Paris tramps nose. You know, he goes to, mm. the, to the worst parts of Wigan and he comes across this tri- tripe shop. And there's some debate in Wigan about exactly how realistic that depiction of the, of the tripe shop was. Yeah. Um, but then, in a way, then what happens is he, he goes through the book and he almost does an about flip. And I find, I think that the tripe shop scene is, is one that we all remember who read it. But there's a scene later on that I find the most difficult, which is the scene where he idealises the working-class household to mm. a mythical degree, where he has father with his pipe by the fire, the manly coal miner, and he has mother and doing the knitting and the children behaving themselves. And this, you know, neither of those are real. Neither of those are yeah. in any way accurate depictions of what was going on in northwest England at that time. But but he he goes straight from contempt to worship without passing points in between. So I think that's why... Well, I mean, that's a massive generalisation. That's not true. It's not fair. <laughs> you know, he, he what he learns... I would argue, and many other people do argue, although I know it's not, not everyone agrees, what he learned in Wigan Pier perhaps it, it gave him the passion to go to Spain and fight for the International Brigades. There he learned about, you know, Stalin's purges firsthand, comes back and writes two of the greatest novels of the 20th century. So, yeah. But he may not have taken that journey if he hadn't done Wigan Pier, which it was a commission. It wasn't a, a, a passion book. He, he kind of went up there almost reluctantly. And, you know, of course, of course, if you're going to do a book, if you're going to walk the north of England, as, as anyone did, I mean, I found people who were absolutely the Daily Mail's worst enemy. You know, they were people who'd not worked for 19 years and were drinking the lot yeah. away and didn't care. And they were the best fun. You know, they really were. If you yeah. spent six months wandering around in terrible, terrible conditions and the ones who you, your day lit up was when there was someone coming in and going, you know what, yeah. I'm, you know, this is what I am. You know, I may be dead in five years' time, but at least I had a good life. And... It, I think it's, as you say, in a way what we've got is we've got a series of portraits of people, none of which are necessarily helpful or useful in understanding really what's going on. In Orwell's time, what we saw was, and there's a guy in Liverpool who says this to me, we saw uh, periods of grim uh, employment broken up by periods of unemployment. And now what we're seeing is a life of unemployment broken up by government schemes. Yeah. Uh, and that's partly because we've gutted a particular strata of our, you know, gutted the industrial heart of, of, you know, the first industrialised nation. Now, the expectation then is on the people who, who, who were, if you like, educated, trained to work in factories and pits, when that's gone, what are you supposed to do? 
a lot of the arguments have been about motility. You've got to you've got to follow the jobs. It's a globalized world. You know the jobs are here, the jobs are there. Keep moving. But people don't really want to leave their parents. They don't want to leave this stuff. You know, there's a thing about Wigan, which is that you know it used to be a mill town, and then it became a pit town. So we got rid of the mills. Now you've got to be pits. Got rid of the pits. Now you've got to do food processing. So they moved. They they got food processing centres into the town. Each time another demand is made, everyone does it. They do it really well. Yeah, look, we've done it. Um, not in some kind of idealised, desperate to work things, but just because people want money and they, you know, work yeah. stops you having a terrible time, and then it keeps getting hoofed away again. And yeah. they keep turning up and joining the army. They keep dying for Britain. The war memorial in Wigan is, you know, go there on Remembrance Sunday. It's covered in poppies from children whose fathers died recently. Yeah. Where I grew up, that's not there. The wars yeah. ended in 1945. You know, there, there is that sense that the. That, that people, they're prepared to give a great deal for, the, for their community and that there isn't necessarily recognition of that, of that exchange, either as an idealised form or as a scumbag form. It's just not really, you know, real yeah. people aren't necessarily there. Because you actually went to work in one of these food processing factories, just as Orwell went down um, the pit in um, yeah. Road to Wigan Pier, and Orwell describes in great detail the, the kind of hardships of this yes. life of industrial toil. And, in, I mean, because in your book you're dealing with a, a kind of a post-industrial landscape it's quite a different set of problems isn't it because um, I mean there are, so, there are obviously there are continuities as well but Orwell you know talks about how ugly Wigan has been made by these slag heaps by this yes. you know this coal mining industry uh, and how brutal um, and often short the yes. life is of the coal miner and, and you're dealing with a situation in which people have become quite kind of nostalgic in some way, respects for that industrial uh, yes. life. So how did you? Well, and also, there's, but there's a bit, there's, there's a bit to the research which I, which I didn't really get into the book properly, and it's a very, it's a point that I found difficult to to properly make. Was that quite often I'd meet older people, particularly in Wigan. I remember when I went into um, the food processing factory, I was staying with some people in Wigan, and I met a woman who had been probably. She would have been too young to have been around in all this time. But, and she was saying, if, if you stood here, where, which is on a slight rise, you couldn't see the centre of Wigan because the constant smoke and the constant darkness was such that you couldn't see anything much from here. It's much cleaner now. It's much better. I mean, when I went, worked in the uh, food processing plant, the chances of me dying were effectively zero. Yeah. You know? When all went down the pit, he could have died. It's yeah. abs Health and yeah. safety rules... You know, for all that they're mocked by Jeremy Clarkson, what they do is they stop people going deaf, they stop people dying. And I had, my, I had to wear my earmuffs, I had to wear my thing. If I wasn't wearing them, the floor supervisor would tell me, no, you, you've got to go home now, you've got to obey these rules. So there's certain things, there's certain elements of the safety net in which things are far better. Conversely, a lot of the work that people would have had back in 36 when they got the work would be a job, a job, proper job, as we understand it. You know, you'd, you'd start work, you'd be an apprentice, you'd work often in brack-breaking horrific conditions for a short period of time and then you die, you know. <laughs> but in this food processing plant, there were no jobs. What there were was there were short-term contracts, zero-hours contracts, brief yeah. periods. So you're, you're trying to work out... It's very hard. And it, it, uh, perhaps this is now, uh, looking back on it, this is a failing now, thinking about this, just on the spot. Orwell does a chapter on how ugly northern cities were. And I chose to make that chapter... I copied his chapter plan. And I chose to make that chapter about racism and about immigration because he didn't cover that. And perhaps, actually, I should have dealt with the, the way that that, you know, that horror, horrid, horrid, that's an Orwellian word, um, that sort of you know, darkness had been lifted. And I think that's probably a failing. The basis of their diet, therefore, is white bread and margarine, corned beef, sugared tea and potatoes. 
an appalling diet. Would it not be better if they spent more money on wholesome things like oranges and wholemeal bread, or if they even, like the writer of the letter to the New Statesman, saved on fuel and ate their carrots raw? Yes, it would. But the point is that no ordinary human being is ever going to do such a thing. The ordinary human being would sooner starve than live on brown bread and raw carrots. And the peculiar evil is this, that the less money you have, the less inclined you feel to spend it on wholesome food. A millionaire may enjoy breakfasting off orange juice and rye vita biscuits. An unemployed man doesn't. Here the tendency of which I spoke at the end of the last chapter comes into play. When you are unemployed, which is to say when you are underfed, harassed, bored and miserable, you don't want to eat dull, wholesome food. You want something a little bit tasty. There is always some cheaply pleasant thing to tempt you. Let's have three penneth of chips. Run out and buy us a tuppenny ice cream. Put the kettle on and we'll all have a nice cup of tea. That is how your mind works when you are at the PAC level. All while uh, reflecting on uh, why the poor are not happy to live on brown bread and raw carrots, Stephen Armstrong, you write very interestingly in your book about attitudes to food, uh, both among the working class and among, um, I suppose, the, the kind of intelligentsia now, and on, to an extent on how these have developed over um, time. Could you just sort of... Uh, yeah. I, mean, I think that Orwell is interesting in that he he champions particular perceptions of, of people against who he considers to be his enemies. And I mean, the, the book, Road to Wigan Pier, was commissioned by Victor Galantz for the New Left Book Club, broadly. And Orwell's audience at that point would have probably, you could probably sum them up in the way that we sum up Guardian readers today, but they were they referred to as New Statesman readers in those days when the New Statesman had a circulation. The second half of the book, he goes into them in a particularly aggressive way, labelling them as, you know, effectively, I think he says, bearded, sandal-wearing, nudist vegetarians. Yeah. Um, his bile pours out and he's defending what he perceives to be the the diet of the working class against these letters of, of earnest Fabian paternalism. It's like he says in, in um, I think it's in newspapers and cigarettes, this idea that, you know, smoke, because what else are you going to do? You also have this glut of cheap unhealthy carbohydrate that floods the market and that produces its own its own problems you know Jamie Oliver who's quite an interesting person in this in this whole sort of contemporary version of this debate where he used the war rations issued by the Ministry of Food to live on and, and made the argument that at that point Britain was healthier than it had ever been mm. and some people I think do believe that the only way to make people eat healthily is literally to have a Ministry of Food and issue food out for the people for their best interests who will be eating this sort of thing yeah. and Orwell obviously wouldn't have wouldn't have had any trouble with that idea at all. Yeah. It's really interesting questions that Orwell's asking about the degree to which the state, you know, a paternalistic social democratic state, should um, dictate to the um, working classes of that country um, what they should eat. And I mean, I think this is a debate that really shift the grounds really shifted, um, you know, over the early part of the century, because the, the Edwardian period was characterised in particular by celebration uh, on the part of sort of social reformers of cheap food of white bread you know uh, this was the this was the argument in the edwardian period for free trade was yes. that an, an unregulated global market in wheat was providing the poor with cheap bread <laughs> yeah. and that that was the best thing for the right poor um, and then as the after the first world war which um you know involved massive state intervention into every aspect of people's lives and that you know that war economy is one that 
which saw the, the state expanding its sphere of influence hugely. But a more social democratic um, idea of the healthiness of food and the quality of food starts to come around. So you get, you get the, the foundation of the milk board, for example, in response to a series of fatalities, yeah, um, yeah. particularly a lot of infant fatalities, from drinking adulterated milk. And, you know, so from that celebration of the, of the cheap life in the Edwardian period, you get emerging in the in period that Orwell is writing the idea of a kind of state regulation of, of areas of the market for food uh, in order to maintain quality. And it's quite similar to what you were saying before about health and safety regulation starting to come in. Yes. Um, and Orwell seems to be quite kind of ambivalently positioned in relation to those because he both wants to celebrate that cheap carbohydrate but he also complains about what he calls the post-war development of cheap luxuries um, fish and chips art silk stockings tinned salmon cut price chocolate five two ounce bars of sixpence the movies the radio strong tea and football pools yes and he says that these things are kind of averted <laughs> revolution in some ways that these are these are cheap palliatives that would you know we feed the working classes in order that they don't rise up yeah, and actually that particular passage, one of the other things I really like about that passage, there's a little bit around there where he talks about kids in Manchester getting uh, several row suits on higher purchase so they can mm. look like Clark Gable. <laughs> and you get the, you know, there is, I think often with Road to Wigan Pier, we have a almost Victorian sense of these hovels, but also you, you keep getting these glimpses of what is also going on largely. I mean, if you look at the 30s, really, that's as much a feature of the 30s as the hovel, this idea of the consumer society. You know, yeah. high purchase is essentially the, you know, the 30s credit card and people buying Savile suits and buying Nikes on their credit cards. It's the same mm. thing that Orwell is, is reacting against with his, as you say, with his almost Puritan level. And, and he's, he's quite, in a way, he's caught up in this quite despairing position that you find, I think you find the despair much more now which is that intellectually it's a complicated and compromising argument, and partly because the liberal left has a, a beautiful tendency to wrap itself up in the, in the most Gordian of knots. If you look at the uh, University of Chicago, the monetarist set of ideas, what they would do is they would frame uh, free market liberalism in terms of choice against the idea of a state which in, interferes and imposes. And what Margaret Thatcher was very good at doing was articulating that into a into a way that hit the British working class. So the idea that you shouldn't be told what to do by the government. It mm. becomes really important. Buy your council house. Why should we tell you how to live? You know, mm. why should we force these things upon you? You have the freedom to to do to do what freedom and choice become political words. What people are doing is they're making political arguments over over people's health. Whereas I think you find, I found anyway, I think that people broadly speaking don't want to poison themselves. You know, there are always going to be people who drink themselves to death. There are always going to be people who smoke too much. But most people, most of the time, have a vague idea of what they ought and ought not to be eating. And, and yeah, so Orwell just, to me, seems quite ambivalent about the idea of a kind of big socialist collectivist state. Yes. I mean, in, in, he talks at several points about what he calls the beehive state. Yes. And he, I mean, he says this is one of the pe things that people often object to about socialism is the idea that it's going to be this huge bureaucracy which wants to watch what you're eating, what you're, um, you know, what you're reading, what you're watching, how you're educated. And he, but he says, you know, the beehive state is in a way inevitable in a highly industrialised society. And the choice isn't between a beehive state and a not beehive state. It's between a socialist beehive state and a fascist beehive state. And he yes. makes this kind of very... Um, yeah, well, that's the 30s argument, really. Yeah, I mean, which is extremely kind of perceptive, especially in terms of the way that many of the people that he 
derides as the kind of bourgeois left weren't making those kind of arguments. But um, he certainly doesn't seem to be an enthusiastic um, supporter of the beehive as a modern no. society. Um, no. And so I think in some respects he would have he would have understood some of some of those kind of cod Thatcherite arguments about why are you interfering with my life, oh government. Yes, um, well. I think there's a lot of people who would argue that Orwell, as he lived, would have been essentially a, a high church Tory by the time he, um, by the time he reached later writing. And maybe you could see, you can certainly you can see, in the Daily Telegraph, people like Peter Oborn are probably the true inheritors of Orwell's uh, direction. Anyway, I mean, oddly, if you search for Road to Wigan Pier in the British media. The newspaper that quotes from Road to Wigan Pier most commonly is the Daily Telegraph, and uh, not the same author. Lots of different authors. It's, there's a very yeah. yeah, yeah, and and Oborn wrote a uh, an editorial just after the riots, which was I think Orwellian. You know, he he poured scorn on everybody largely, and, and it was in this beautiful invective. Orwell assumes the existence of the Beehive State because of his time and his place. I suppose what I found conversely is that it was and you you spoke I think off mic, but you spoke about. Um, Orwell calling for a new socialist party in the in, in the Road to Wigan Pier. And there were moments, particularly writing the book in August, where you would see something that Peter Oborn was writing, and then you'd read something that Danny Dawling was writing from the left, and you did get a, a sense that there was a third, or maybe fourth these days, perspective, which was this this one-nation view, if you like, that that was uh, practical, largely. That, that OK, this is... Uh, we understand what you're arguing about, but can we just fix things, please? Can we have a party that will just fix things? And then... Mm. But the thing that Orwell had at that time is he was arguing about he was arguing, if you like, against a spectrum of perspectives. You know, whilst he was walking the road to Wigan Pier, Keynes was coming up with his masterwork. You know? uh, the welfare state uh, wasn't conceived of, but there, there were developments in that regard. There was Marxism, there was Fabianism, there were um, there was fascism. There there were different strands of political ideas. The the ideas of socialism that Orwell is arguing for and against don't really exist anymore. Really, no one's no one's taking those ideas forward into the political debate in any kind of, kind of you know, meaningful way. The people who are, I think, do, making difference tend to be working really within a few square miles. You know, there are people in, in towns and cities who are doing incredible things, who are rethinking structures of care at a non-impositional, uh, really creative way, but who are working just from community centres. And now these people are disempowered, they're, they're uh, struggling financially, but they have a very interesting set of values and ideas which are learned and created from experience rather than from from ideology. And and it, I think the most interesting thing would be to see, and I don't think anyone will, but to see how you could bring these ideas together into something, I don't know what you'd call it, communitarianism or something, but into a set of ideas which were not imposed from above, but you know, flourished up from below, but were nonetheless rich in learning and experience. Okay, Steve, with, with that in mind, let's um, just wrap up by thinking about Orwell's sort of relation to the left and, and if we might do it a little bit kind of the legacy of his his ideas and not just his ideas but his kind of mode of address for um, for the left now because it seems to me that apart from people like Peter Oborn there are all sorts of commentators kind of from across the political spectrum including um, Nick Cohen um, Christopher Hitchens until recently um, who have kind of taken on the mantle um, of somebody who's who's on the left, but spends most of their time sort of chastising their comrades on the left. Yeah, the arch contrarian. Um, yeah, um, and um, Orwell's book came in two parts. Uh, the first part was a detailed description of his time in Wigan, 
uh, and in other northern cities. And the second part was largely um, a long kind of um, chastisement of, um, of various left-wingers who he described as vegetarians with wilting beards, Bolshevik commissars, earnest ladies in sandals, shock-haired Marxists chewing polysyllables, escaped Quakers, birth control <laughs> fanatics and Labour Party backstairs crawlers. Socialism, in this, at least in this island, does not smell any longer of revolution and the overthrow of tyrants. It smells of crankishness, machine worship and the stupid cult of Russia. It's part of my favourite... That bit is one of my favourite bits of the book. It's yeah. kind of his, you know, yeah. he unleashes. But but you don't your your book doesn't have a second part where you tell off all of the people who no. are getting it wrong. So I mean, but I I mean I think that I partly because I, I mean this is my opinion that I don't perceive there being a coherent set of ideas that you'd call the left anymore. I mean I think mm. that if you if you were to ask what does the Labour Party stand for, I think it's broadly speaking the same kind of broad economic principles as, as all the other parties. I think if you said, you know, what is the equivalent to the Communist Party? I mean, I don't think they're... What do you say, the Socialist Workers' Party? It's about, you know, 50 people in the newspaper. I'm not sure that there is this kind of current of, of ideas of, of things being thrown up. I and mean, one, one of the obvious um, uh, proofs of this, if you like, is that when Orwell travelled, he was largely helped out by trade union officials. And... Um, Independent Labour Party and Communist Party members, um, and the, the organisations, really the only organisations that I could find on the ground where I was going was um, people like Oxfam, yeah. uh, small scale local charities, and the church, and that was pretty much it. You know, the, the, there were no trade unions to speak of. Those that were were, were, were you speak to the national offices, and they'd be fighting, you know, often survival related campaigns. So you'd, you'd talk to them, and they go, yeah, yeah, okay, right, we just can we get back to you. You know, I've just went. I bumped into by accident um, uh, the an MP in Wigan, and she had just been to address. She was she's young. She didn't know that there had been a national union of rail workers, and she just been to speak to them. She said, "Wow, I didn't know that." I think you're a Labour MP. You have vague awareness of the national union of rail workers, mm. but you know there was no for, for her mind that this union had, had stopped existing. But these were these old men who who would listen to her talk. So I think that where he where he encountered this kind of intense student union, if you like, debate all across the country at every level, I'm not sure that you'd know who to tilt at, really. Yeah. I tilt at the past of the Labour Party. I tilt at the ideas they came up with in the 50s and the 90s to a degree. But I don't know who you'd tilt at. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways some of, some of the, um, the bile of the kind of anti-communist left, like of, of the, sort of the non-communist left, as they were, were called... Who very much took their cue from Orwell and Kerstler in um, trying to develop a a mode of discourse that was kind of, that was social democratic and socialist, but also like virulently anti-communist. I find echoes of it in um, some write, some of the writings about Islamism that you see now. Yeah. In terms of you know, there's a sense that if you people, I mean, people like Nick Cohen, mm. Christopher Hitchens, were, were always very concerned about. Um, People on the left who are seen to be sympathetic to radical Islam, yeah. uh, and that seems to be a structure and and a um, a way a way of talking about politics, which has kind of come down from that that particular form of non-communist left writing that comes from all that. And I mean, yes. that's just one kind of echo. Which well, seems no, I agree. It, Actually, I, I'll tell you what. I, it, having 
heard you said that, I think you're right. I think that if I was to, if I was, and this is where I think actually, again, I don't think it would be feasible in the context of this book, mm. but if I was to criticise the left in Britain really hard over the last 10 years, I would say, and I'll get shot in the face for this, but I would say there is an obsession with Islam and Iraq in the left. Now, I was talking to a woman in Bradford who really lived in just the worst conditions, you know, and at one point, halfway through me talking to her, she said, I don't know why you're talking to me about this. You know, this is boring. This is, you know, no one is interested in this. My kid goes to school and learns more about Africa and Iraq than they, he does about his own estate. If you're living in a really, really impoverished council estate, where you're having your benefits cut, if you're having Bright House come around to reclaim your furniture and your television, if you've got, you know, you've got very little hope apart from debt, I'm not sure proving who was right in the Blair... Bush axis is the most important thing anymore, really. I think it's time we moved on. <laughs>